For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. It makes all the difference in the world that we know that the One who suffered and died for us, who went to the cross to open that way of salvation, wasn't simply a Son of God, not even just the Son of God, but God the Son. Likewise, the Spirit poured out at the behest of Jesus, that promise of the Father, is not simply a, a messenger, a servant of God, sent to do His work in this world, but is God the Holy Spirit. The very life and presence of God at work within us, coming to do the things that God alone can do. We have that mystery of the Holy Trinity where we see that one God and yet the distinctiveness of the persons, the ways in which he interacts with us, that something more than just his relation to us, something deeper, something more mysterious, and yet does affect us in those ways that he touches our lives. We're not simply looking upward. He comes down to lay hold of us and invites us into that living relationship with him. We do sometimes spend a lot of time trying to figure out how that can all work together, how God is three and one and one and three. We did at Matins this morning go through the Athanasian Creed. Um, some of us have been used to doing that at different seasons of the year, particularly in Matins. Um, in the Book of Common Prayer for Anglicans, it was page 695, that's etched in my head. In the current office books, it starts on page 156, flips over to 157. It's the best attempt I know to articulate the distinctiveness and the unity to say what we believe and what we don't believe and then to focus in on the two natures in Christ and the work of the Lord. But for all of that, it's words and it doesn't come to the fullness of the mystery The danger sometimes when we try to work it out intellectually is that we do it then at a distance. And we begin to think that the Trinity is just a theological concept, which means that we treat God as something rather than someone. The mystery is not so much something to get our heads around as something that the Lord invites us into. In Him we live and move and have our being. Some of you have heard me tell the story before, maybe a few times, of St. Augustine, um, Augustine to whom we looked for good articulation of things of the church's understanding of the Trinity, but not the one who invented anything, who's simply bearing witness to what the church comes to understand, what God has revealed. But the story of him on one occasion walking by the seaside as he contemplated the mystery and coming upon this little child who had dug a hole in the sand and had a shell and was running out into the surf and filling the shell with water, running back in and emptying it into his hole, back out into the water. If you have small children around you, you know this kind of scene. It's familiar. And the saint, amused, looked on for a little while, but then he said, Child, what are you doing? And he said, Oh, great and learned teacher, I'm emptying the sea into my hole 
in the sand. And still amused, the saint said, Child, the sea is much too large for your little hole to contain it. And the child looked at him and said, And neither can you comprehend the mystery of the Trinity. My understanding is that for Augustine, always he understood that the encounters with the child, if you know of his conversion, the child's voice that gets through, but he knew to be encounters with Christ himself. And of course, no good ancient tale does not include the address of great and learned teacher. Anyway, greater theologians than I, not wishing to flatter myself unduly, but than any of us here, have struggled with things and some have have come aground on this very thing. I remember one of my old friends who had started into studying for ordination, who actually said to me one time, do you not realize that the greatest difficulty between us and other religions is this business of the Trinity? And he was going on to argue why we should kind of put it aside. Thank God he did not go on to ordination in an Anglican context, all those years ago. We're not so much to grasp by the mind as to enter into communion with him, to discover, as we discover one whom we love, that you get to know the other person. You don't know everything about the person, but you come to know. And the knowing is something much deeper and much more of that communion with one another. Again, in whom we live and move and have our being. John 3, Jesus talking with Nicodemus, talks about this mystery. Here's the great teacher amongst the Jews. A very learned man, but he, he can't quite figure out what's going on. He doesn't even know how to formulate a question. But he comes to Jesus. He's told that you need a new birth to see the kingdom of God. To perceive it, you need this new birth of water and the Spirit to enter into this mystery. And as Nicodemus is puzzled, we get the example of the wind and the movement of the wind. We've been talking about that recently. The inscrutability of the ways of the wind. You can't make sense. You, you see it moving. You know that it's at work, but you don't know where it comes from, where it's going. And so it is with those who are born of the Spirit. It's not that we come to understand up here all of those things, but it becomes our nature. We enter in. And so the reflection even on Jesus getting up to wash the disciples' feet, knowing He'd come from God and was going to God, that what He does in washing their feet is not, as we would often think, just a lesson for them. It comes of who He is. It's the natural outpouring of that love a demonstration of the fullness that is to come in the way of the cross. We're to enter into that life. It's to become our nature, to know Him that way from the inside and as He is work inside us. We hear about the essential nature of God being that love. One who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But one does not love in the solitary. Come back to this again and again. One does not love on one's own. There's something of a communion that's required for love to be given and to be received. 
On the one hand, we have the fundamental declaration that God is one. You know, the Shema for the Hebrew, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Echad, that Hebrew word. It can be understood that there's one God, there's only one Lord. But I've related before, an Old Testament scholar, Dr. Bruce Waltke, years ago, coming to the parish I was in and reflecting off out of his years of study. You know, there's got to be more to this word. There's something that I'm missing in it and saying that at the time it was a young scholar. But then again, we're getting closer to 40 years ago, so none of us is as young as we were in those days. But it would hit the nail on the head. He said, and identified it as integrity. You know, it's a oneness, but it's this unity in who he is. Who he is as God is how he speaks, how he acts, how he relates to others. And we know that this is the God who says, I am who I am. The one who is, has that full integrity of, of his person who pours out that life for others. One, but it's not a solitary Unity, even there, the integrity within the person. Well, then we go to the whole mystery of the Trinity, but there's a little reflection there in the garden. Do you remember that at the creation, it's a ground we've been going over of late. I know I was talking about it this week at the conference. Um, everything's pronounced good. All of the creation flows out. And when we get to the crown of creation, the human beings created in God's image and likeness, male and female, charged to be fruitful and multiply. Everything is very good. But we pick up the story again a little bit earlier in chapter 2, where we have the solitary man in the garden. And there for the first time, the word, it is not good. What's not good that the man should be alone? And we see that out of the one comes the other, that we have the man now and the woman, the male and the female, and the word at that time, that the intention of that, there's that, that conjunction, therefore a man shall leave his, his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The whole reason for the division is that they would come together in the one flesh union, the fruitful union, the children that proceed, the, the family that grows out of that, reflect in a much fuller way now that image and likeness to God. Because in God is that communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Still the mysterious diversity within that, the division within, the threeness, but the oneness, but the oneness in that communion of love that's a rich and a full union. Think again about something I spoke of last week. Thinking about Pentecost and the reversal of Babel. You know, at the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, you get the confusion of tongues and the dispersion. There's now a diversification that they no longer have the common ground, they no longer have the unity. And yet, at Pentecost, as the Lord opens up the tongues, you get this harmony that comes together which forms an even deeper unity 
They're all in that common theme of the wonderful works of God. It draws people together. And yet it doesn't compromise the diversity, if you will. They're all the languages. There's all the difference. All these different notes, but the notes are all organized such that rather than cacophony, you get the harmony. You get the fullness of the tone. There's a deeper beauty that is raised up of this community of love gathered together. Of course, in the garden, as sin comes in, the thing that sin does is it divides. It it points us in on ourselves. It alienates one from another. You've heard this one before. You'll probably hear it many times more as long as I'm around here. But just that really simple picture of sin in English having I in the center. And that's what's at the heart of sin. It's focused on me. You know, the selfless love becomes the self-centered love. And on the cross, Jesus crosses out the eye and restores himself to the center. Restores that communion with God. Always the way of the devil. Always the way of Satan. To take us out of that communion with God. We often think about him having his kingdom. You know, the fallen angels who are with him, we think of this great company, the hosts of the evil one. But remember Jesus when he was accused of casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons, said, well, is Satan divided against Satan? You know, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Well, we forget that Jesus knows that that kingdom will not stand. The devil devours his own. You know that old saying, there's no honor among thieves? If he can thwart the will of God, he will undermine any of his own. The way of the devil is the way of alienation, the way of the distortion, the way of fear, of hatred, the things that divide us. God draws us into love, into forgiveness, into healing. We all know some of that bitter fruit of, of the last few years where we came to have that separating of others. I pointed in the thick of all of that to saying that the things we really count on in spiritual warfare come to be stripped away without pointing the finger at, at any human being, any human institution for the moment, just to say that there was a demonic agenda at work motivating things that has people distanced from one another, not coming in fellowship in the church, not able to share in the sacraments of the church. Holy water comes to be cut off. Faces come to be covered that bear the image and likeness. They're the things that separate us, that move us more and more in on ourselves. Perhaps you know some who took their own lives through all that process or sunk into deep depression. God calls us into life, calls us back into reconciliation with him, to disarming of the devil. And so that even as I talk about those things, I'm not saying that therefore when you're separated off that the deal is that you ought to begin to to fight with others and actually fulfill a different demonic agenda, but that we look to disarm the devil and the very ones who thwart you, the very ones who push away are the ones who most need to be forgiven, perhaps to be asked for forgiveness, who need to be prayed for, who need to be loved. 
the heart of the divine trinity, that perfect love of God. God who wonderfully, when we do come to be alienated from him, does not simply send the Son to the cross to die for us, to forgive the sins and have the way open for us to make our choice to come back to him. Initially, he allows the consequences of the sin. He allows a way of of suffering for us. The church fathers were quite clear that that's a way of mercy and love because he lets us know what it means to walk away from him. He didn't from a distance pronounce a way of forgiveness, but came down into the midst. It makes all the difference in the world that God didn't just send a messenger, but God the Son came to take our nature upon him, to suffer and to die upon the cross. It makes all the difference in the world that God did not just send a messenger to encourage us on the way, but God the Holy Spirit came to dwell in us as we came to Jesus, as we were baptized into him, in order to work in us that transformation, to renew us in the image and likeness of God. Moses, in our lesson today, he set that one in context. It's chapter 34. You know that we've had the incident with the golden calf. Moses was ready to throttle his own people. The first set of the tablets have been destroyed. Moses was so livid with what was going on. Now he in humility is going back up the mountain to receive the new copy. He's given some glimpse of God's glory, what he is able to see. His earnest prayer now for his people always thrills me on some level. I really believe that God put Moses to the test. He was ready to throttle his people until God said, okay, step out of the way. Let me destroy them. And then Moses' eyes go wide and he says, no, 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 Lord, you can't do that. Kind of like the brothers and sisters who pick on each other, but then when somebody else is going to hurt them, say, whoa, that's my brother, that's my sister, you can't do that, and step in in between. But now he knows, he knows that for all the brokenness, for all the sin, for all the things to be upset with with them, that what they really need is the presence of God in their midst. What they really need is for the Lord to be what he's proclaimed himself to be. The one who is loving and merciful, who is slow to anger, who is swift to forgive his people. They need to know that he will be in their presence because without that, they cannot be healed. They cannot have life. John 17, as Jesus prays that great high priestly prayer, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing him, believing and trusting in him, but believing not so much things about him, good to get the doctrines right, not just believing that he is real, but putting our faith in him, putting our trust in him. Again, I've talked before about the word to believe, the verb in Greek is pistuo. And we think of to believe, but that so often means I I hold these right concepts in my head. Pistis is the word for faith. And I like to think of pistuo as to put faith in, not just to believe in 
about something, but to put faith in, that active entrustment. Abraham becomes the father of our faith because at the call of God, he lets go of everything else. He believed God, and that was reckoned to him as righteousness. But his belief is not just he believes he exists, not just that he believes certain things about him, but he actually entrusts his life to him, puts his life on the line to follow. The Son came to reveal the Father as only He can. The Spirit leads us into the things of Jesus. John 16, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Christ came not simply to die for us to take away sin, but to open the way to the Father and to come to take us with him to that place that is prepared, as he says, that where I am, there you may be also. One last thought. The Revised Standard Version, the second Catholic edition from which we read, refers to Christ as the only begotten Son. That was a correction of the translation that had come into play that said simply his only Son. We are all God's children. On some level, every human being is a son or daughter of God. We are all separated from God by our sin. We need not just a way of forgiveness, but a way of being reborn, transformed, actually made his true sons and daughters. A mother gives birth. A father begets. If you know your begets and the lists through the Old Testament, you've got the flavor of that. Traditionally, you beget of a male principle. The mother again gives birth. But the sense is, this is the one who is of the same nature, in human terms, the very DNA of the father, but who has been the only begotten from the beginning. Because always God has been this mystery of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we come in Christ, we become not just generically children of God, not simply what we were before, it's a whole new depth of relationship. We speak sometimes of being adopted into the family. Said, well, adoption in human terms means you're treated as though you're part of the family. And adoptive parents can be wonderful parents, and I don't diminish in any way the relation that is there, but they're not biologically the same. We can't do that as human beings whatever, we can falsify a birth certificate these days, but God can make us new. He can give us a new birth. He can make us begotten sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. He can make us like Christ. In fact, that's where our life is. You died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3. Christ restores us to the communion intended to be hid with him in God, seated with him at the right hand of the Father, welcome into life eternal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent.